Jesus, the Jewish Christian Messiah. The data we've examined reveals a Jesus who is a thoroughly political figure, though he wielded none of his political authority at his first coming, and he kept himself and his followers strictly apart from the politics of the day. There is a sense in which Jesus' mission was thoroughly political from the start. The New Testament describes him as battling with the supernatural forces of Satan. It would be proper to call this involvement in cosmic politics. For biblical Christianity, the battle between Jesus and Satan is the real issue, and it's a struggle for world domination yet to be resolved, though the promise of Jesus' ultimate triumph is assured. God in Christ is recovering rebel earth from the clutches of the devil. Because of human stubbornness and blindness, however, Satan is still, quote, the God of this age, as in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, 1 John 5, 19, and Revelation 12, verse 9. Traditional Christian teaching has almost entirely discarded the political element in the teaching of Jesus, either by neglecting the sayings about rulership, which he expected for himself and his disciples, or by claiming, against the plainest evidence of the New Testament, that the executive positions promised to his disciples were to be assumed now, before the second coming. The theory that the apostles were offered kingship over the church is in collision with the clear teaching of the New Testament that it is, quote, in the new age, when Jesus comes in his glory, Matthew 19, 28 and 25, 31, and not before that the Messiah's followers are to share rulership with him. The nobleman in the parable had to return from heaven before he was authorized to deal with his enemies and rule with the faithful in his kingdom. Until Jesus comes back, the disciples are to persist in praying, thy kingdom come. And it is not until the kingdom comes, Luke 22, 18, that Jesus sits down with his disciples in the kingdom in which he promises them a share. The widely held view that the promise of rulership applies to the period prior to the second coming represents a fatal dislocation of the biblical scheme, has had the tragic effect of promoting an entirely unbiblical view of the future and drawing a veil over the reality of the kingdom of God to be put in effect when Jesus returns. The mind of Jesus is fully revealed in the revelation which he communicated through the beloved disciple John. We find him corroborating his exhortation to persist until the great day. Hold fast until I come. That those who win the victory continue to the end to do what I want. I will give the same authority that I receive from my Father. I will give them authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod and to break them in pieces like clay pots. To those who win the victory, I will give the right to sit beside me on my throne, just as I have been victorious and sit by my Father on his throne. It's in Revelation 2, 25 to 27 and Revelation 3, 21. These are the words of the Savior himself. Quote, the Son of God says this, as in Revelation 2.18, and the churches are exhorted to hear what the Spirit says to them. It is hard to see how the average churchgoer possesses anything like the outlook on the future inculcated by Jesus in these verses. 
Traditional Christianity appears to have made nothing of these dramatic Christian teachings. The words we have cited in Revelation are, after all, only a confirmation of what Jesus had already laid before the apostles as the goal of their discipleship. That is to join him in administering a renewed Israel and the world. We find that in Matthew 19, 28, Luke 22, 28 to 30, and Revelation 2, 26, 3, 21, 5, verse 10, and chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. Despite the fact that this full-blooded messianic hope was instilled by Jesus, commentators have expressed their antipathy to his messianism by labeling the activity of the Messiah described in Psalm 2 and echoed in Jesus' words in Revelation as, quote, unchristian. They do not see how the activity of the king described in Psalm 2 can have any relevance to Jesus. Despite his own quotation of Psalm 2, with reference to himself and his church, the following comment is not untypical. I quote, Psalm 2 cannot be strictly regarded as referring to Jesus, partly because the establishment of the king upon the holy hill of Zion would have no relevance in his case, partly because the conception of his function as dashing his enemies in pieces is unchristian. That's from the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels. Now, of course, at the second coming, Jesus will act as the agent of God's wrath against a hostile world. Meanwhile, Christians are required to deal non-violently with their enemies. Matthew 5, 39 and 40. Theologians who canvass this point of view are caught in a tragic contradiction. While they say that they accept Jesus as the Christ, they attempt to circumscribe his activities in a way which would exclude a major part of his biblical messiahship. Jesus does not share the qualm of the theologians about the second psalm, for in the revelation which he granted to John and through him to the church, he actually urges the faithful to press on to the goal, which is to share messianic, I quote, authority over the nations. The promises of royal privilege are clear beyond any dispute. In Revelation 2, 26, 3, 21, Revelation 5, verse 10, and Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, as they are also in Matthew 19, 28, and Luke 22, 28 to 30. In Revelation 3, 21, Jesus carefully distinguishes between his present coordination with the Father on the Father's throne and his future reign on his own Davidic throne in the Messianic kingdom. Quote, I will give them the right to sit beside me on my throne, just as I have been victorious and sit by my father on his throne. All this is precisely what we anticipate from Jesus' teaching in the Gospels and from the Old Testament, which Jesus accepted as the authoritative word of God. The recognition and acceptance of the messianic tone of Jesus' preaching of the kingdom will throw an entirely new light on his person and ministry. It is widely recognized that our understanding of last things, known as eschatology, has somehow fallen into a state of confusion. Ram speaks of, I quote, the hopeless division of evangelical Christianity in prophetic and eschatological matters. 
We find that the most brilliant of commentators apparently do their best to be rid of the whole problem of the future. It's important to realize that confusion over the future means confusion over the gospel of Jesus, which is inextricably bound up with an apocalyptic view of history, a view which sees the whole challenge of human existence in a striving towards participation in the kingdom of God to be manifested in the new age inaugurated by the second coming. Once it is seen that the Old Testament apocalyptic hope for a final divine intervention in the affairs of our world remains undiminished in the New Testament, theology will return to proclaiming the message of Jesus about the kingdom of God rather than using an extraordinary armory of critical devices designed apparently to dismiss from the teaching of Jesus anything that cannot be harmonized with, quote, our modern scientific view.